broadcasting from the doing the most capital of the world. By way of New York, New York, via the internet. This is Bagels and Plantains, a podcast by, for, and showcasing every day, round the way, but always dope as fuck, multifaceted people of color doing the damn thing and doing it well. Every week, we and our guests will be sharing the blueprint and the stories that explore the intersectionality of being Black, Brown, bothered, and unbothered, while thriving and navigating their passions, spaces, and communities. I'm your host, Deidre E. Dehan. And I am your host, Christina Torres. And here we go. Hi, BMP listeners. We are so excited to introduce to you our first, but not last, two-part episode featuring the one and only Maya Millette. So tune in to part one that really gets into who Maya is as a booked and busy freelance writer, editor, and overall dope content producer. So let's get into it. Our guest for the day, our guest for the podcast, Maya Millette. Hello. Hi. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm good. I'm excited. Oh, no problem. We're excited to have you here. (laughs) Just a little bit about Maya. She's a writer. She's an editor. She's a producer. She's a pretty dope chick or woman, depending on how you feel about the way we talk about women. (laughs) It's sensitive out here right now. Mm, It's a little bit. Either is fine. All right. Okay, cool. Yeah. She's also, you know, very chill about the way we talk about her positively. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, right. She's also an amazing person. (laughs) In addition to all of the other things that she's done, she was also on the team that has earned a Peabody Award and not one but two Emmy nominations. Presenting to the pod, Maya. Woo, woo, woo. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Very good. The walk over here was was nice. It's pleasant. It's pleasant outside. It's, it's finally a beautiful warm. Beautiful day. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it lasts for a little while. <laughs> you never really know. You it was like know. 35 and it was like 72. It was 44 and rain all week. I was just like, you're not getting me. I'm going to wear my winter wear. Oh, 72? Still going to wear this wool jacket. Oh, because I, I don't mess with y'all. I don't mess with y'all weather. I'm yeah. not being caught out here having pneumonia. Not me. I have, I have yet to put away my winter clothes, my winter sweaters. Oh, no, sweaters, of course not. Coats. It's all staying out there because I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what tomorrow can bring. It's could, true. <laughs> hail. <Right>. Brimstone. <laughs> no, for real. I'm though. sorry. Oh, I haven't eaten. And my Brim, mind goes Brimstone to might places. be real. Brimstone might be real. So, Tell me about This Is Us. Word. I thought it was a joyful representation of human life, but you uh, might disagree. Well, I mean, no, it has its, <laughs> it does have its moments. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Okay, mm-hmm. so to be fair, I had to stop watching that show because, oh. so I, I'm not totally caught up on this new ist season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mostly because I was tired of crying at mm. the end of every episode. Okay. Yeah, so sure, there are moments throughout the show that are punctuated with joy. Mm -hmm. But the feeling that I'm left with at the end is like, damn. And I'm sad again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. I'll I'll allow it. Because I feel like you alternate, at least in the show, between like happy tears and... That's true. Sad tears and angry tears. But I don't know. I also don't cry during every episode. I do know friends who cry every single episode. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm kind of more like, I very much like the Black Love storyline for those who might oh, not yeah. have seen. So I really like their story. I will say this season, though, ups and downs, ups and downs. With them? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, you really yeah, didn't know how it was going to end. You didn't know how it was going to end. Really? Mm-hmm. So wait, is this new is season, current season, is it over? Or is, I think are they so. Are still in the middle of? I think it's over. 
I, I haven't. Well, I don't know where. I, I not consistent. I like pick it up. I drop it. I pick it up. I drop yeah. it. Mm. But I feel like every episode I watch, I'm like, <sighs> every episode I watch, the sister is always like oh, yeah. either getting dumped by yeah. her her man mm-hmm. or getting saved by her man. There's always something. And I was like, there's always something. Mm-hmm. You know what? This gordita is messy. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, that's she's a laughing going, army. We would have, you know, we don't find that offensive. If I call someone who is yes. a little heavy set gordita, they're like, eh. okay, that's All me. Right. That's facts. All right, great. Moving on in my life. Got you, got you. Sorry for the gorditas. But I was just like, why is she going through such a hard time right now? But this that's man like, that's loves life. her. That is, that is life. This man loves her. But they're married now, right? Yeah, they're, I mean, I don't want to, I was going to say something else. <laughs> Oh. They're still married. They're still married, but you gotta watch because I could oh, I could gosh. definitely ruin this for you guys, but I don't want to. Or Take when he like, she saw something that picture of his hot wife, his oh, hot ex wife. I ex-wife. remember that. Mm. She went off. That's also very much a trigger though, because like if you are with someone and the person they were with before is significantly hotter and like <laughs> universally hotter than people. Like I think that would know, just make me think that I'm very hot and I didn't know it. I'd be like, got like, it. oh, this is my company. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Right, we got a type. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but enough about this is us. Yeah, no, that's not why we're here. No, no, no. We're here to talk about who Maya is. So Maya and I were introduced through our significant others, aka husbands. Shout out to Brian. Yep, and Chris. And Chris. Yep. And when Brian told me about who you were, I was like, "Oh, how come I don't know about this woman?" And then I started following Instagram, and we'll do a little bit more about you. But you are currently an independent writer, editor, producer. Yeah. How did you get there? Ooh, that's a, how did I get to this? To, to this point, to this yes. Point. Right. Well, it was a, and it has been a long, winding journey. Okay. But, I mean, just start with kind of. We can start of like, did you, did you always want to be a writer? Yeah. I mean, yes. I think that I did always want to be a writer. I think that. Writing and reading, you know, that subject was always something that both interested me and came naturally Mm -hmm. to me. So I never, I don't think I ever really entertained a path that wasn't in some way incorporating those two things. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, after thinking about college, what I wanted to do. It was always English. I thought for a little while about pursuing journalism. I did have a professor my maybe my sophomore year of college who who actually it kind of deterred me from pursuing journalism because oh. and he was a he was my nonfiction writing teacher. And he was amazing, actually. He was a, a big influence for me, but he deterred me from journalism because I think that he had in mind a very specific kind of journalism that was the more traditional print journal he's like you know journalists are they're they're sneaky they're you know they're okay and my like impressionable 18 year old I was like okay I guess maybe not I'm not sneaky yeah (laughs) okay they're liars (laughs) before fake news they're combing through people's garbage right Uh, right they're trying to, you know, get the scoop, get the facts. But of course, you know, there's a whole breadth of, of journalism out there. And nonfiction writing and cultural reporting, like, is, is all part of that. Right. One of the, the authors who really kind of introduced me to was Truman Capote and his, hmm, and his writing, his nonfiction writing. 
which completely like transformed my ideas around what nonfiction could be because right. I always, he's such a storyteller. Like it could exactly. easily be fiction mm-hmm. the way he yeah, writes it. Right. Which and is I, exciting because you're like, oh, okay. Right. What's next? I don't have to be dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and boring. Right. It's like, oh, you could actually like take people on a on a journey yeah. with this stuff. And it's real life on top of that. Because before that point, I think I, you know, I thought of nonfiction very much as as biography. Right. Mm. But that really he opened up uh new new worlds for me in that way. So yeah, so I don't know. I have always thought of it as as something that I wanted to do. But leaving college, I thought that, you know, if I was going to continue with it, then I would have to get a master's or a PhD in English. And I didn't want to be a professor. I didn't want to go yeah. the academic route. And I also wanted to just work for a couple of years. I knew that I wanted to go to grad school eventually, mm-hmm, but right. I didn't know... I wasn't I wasn't convinced of exactly what that looked like when I was leaving college. So it's like, let me work for a couple of years and figure it out. And I started working at Johnson Publishing Company in Chicago. This is all this all took place in Chicago. And Johnson Publishing produces Ebony and Jet magazines. Oh, and, like I know that sounds familiar to me. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And this was when they they still had their 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 big office on Michigan Avenue. Wow. Iconic yeah. Michigan Avenue yeah. office. John H. Johnson, who is the founder of, mm-hmm. of JPC, is like the, we're going to have to fact check me on this one, but I am pretty sure he was the first like black man to own real estate on, on Michigan Avenue, that stretch of Michigan Avenue. Wow. Yeah. So it was a big deal. And, you know, this was magazines and that kind of writing was always was something that I was interested in. Yeah. And so to have my first like, you know, like job job out of college be working there at this place that was so historic. Iconic even. Iconic. Yeah. Just steeped in all of our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it is like the the source. Yeah. The mother of so much. I was like, hell yes, this is about to be on is amazing. And it was, but it also happened at the, this was in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. So the, the recession was, was approaching. Was, mm-hmm. it was there. It was there, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it showed up. Yeah, it showed. I think I actually lost my publication job. Yeah. That it was time. a finance corporate, like, it was like, it was so dry, girl. It was dry. It was like IR magazine corporate governance magazine like real dry wow and people were already like doing digital and so they were already hurt mm-hmm. ready mm-hmm. hurt and then they were like so we can't pay you <laughs> i was like okay. <laughs> okay they ended up taking me back later on but i was just like yeah it's real yeah it was really real and yeah yeah it was and i mean there were just mass layoffs there like things were good for the first maybe few few months I was there, maybe up until the first year, well, t- toward the end of the first year, it started getting real shaky. And then, yeah, it just very much shifted. But it was, it was interesting to see how, how a company responded to this time mm-hmm. and how they, how they could kind of adapt and shift to these huge economic changes and try to stay afloat yeah. and you know that it was a it's family-owned business right it, it it was run very much like a small family-owned business 
And I think that they really kind of saw that it was hard for them to adapt to change and adapt to the times and yeah. adapt. It was, it was difficult to… So on that side of things, it was very difficult to witness and to kind and to experience. Yeah. On the other side, the learning side, just based on my job itself, it was it was an amazing it was an amazing job. So I was working, JPC had started a partnership with the Associated Press to digitize their photo archives. Oh, wow. And they needed somebody to sort through the photos and research them, you know, find out who's in the photos, where was it, the kind of historical context around it, and write captions and metadata that they would use when they were cataloging these photos. So that was me. That's what I did. And I worked in the library with the librarian there. Her name is Pam Cash. And she'd been JPC's librarian for like even Ever. Tw- yes. Like <laughs> she has a great name, by the way. Pam Cash. <laughs> Pam Cash. Right? Yes, Pamela Cash. And I learned everything about navigating that library. So much about obviously about JPC's history and black history through her and through just combing through these these archives. I mean, I would like literally just spend the day in these dusty dusty file cabinets just rifling through old contact sheets from the 1950s wow yeah that you know f- like photo shoots that of MLK on vacation in Aruba of James Brown of the Jackson 5 Shirley, Shirley Chisholm Dorothy Height Carmen Delavalade like all of these wow yeah <laughs> and it was it was a very very special experience for me. And yeah, it was amazing. And so and so I spent two years at JPC and then kind of during that second year decided that I did want to go into journalism after all. Okay. And also I guess kind of to to backtrack, when I was in college, I was an English major, but I minored in African and Black Diaspora Studies, the Black Studies. And the other part of not necessarily knowing kind of what I wanted to do with those things afterward was like, if I go into academia, I'm going to be teaching Black Studies, which is great. But I also want to engage more with the world mm-hmm. and with what's going on around us. And and I thought that, and especially after working at JPC, that journalism, especially the kind of journalism that I wanted to do, would allow me to still write about the things and think about the things that I wanted to think about, but in a lot more kind of practical, real-world setting. So I applied to a bunch of different schools and ended up going to NYU in New York, obviously. And (laughs) (laughs) for those who don't know what NYU means and stands for, it is New York University. I didn't even care. I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and came here in 2009 and I've just been here ever ever since and after I graduated I started working at StoryCorps which is a nonprofit oral history organization based out of Brooklyn in Fort Greene and I was working it was actually kind of a I'm doing all sorts of crazy loop rounds but it's okay. It's all right. Bear with me, because <laughs> I before I started working at Johnson Publishing, so I started there basically the summer before 
The summer before I started at JPC, I interned in Chicago at an oral history organization called the History Makers, which was centered completely on African-American stories, archiving kind of the stories of movers and shakers and all yeah. all spaces in, in Black history. And I was basically in charge of writing the outlines that the interviewers would use for their interviews with these history makers. And Juliana, who's the founder of the nonprofit, was very adamant about this research being like not anything that you can just find on the internet. So Mm -hmm. I was, we were really pushed to do a lot of deep investigation into these people's lives and to call the high school where they went and try to talk to their teachers or people who knew their teachers and look up, go look at the yearbooks and research the towns they grew up in. And oh, wow. Investigative yeah. journalism right there. What was going on in the towns because you really wanted to spark something in their memories and, and get them to go to places that they may have not you know, thought, yeah. thought about in, in a while. A lot of these people were older people too. So anything that we could to really get at the richness of story and storytelling is something that I absolutely learned and fell in love with there. So then kind of jumping forward to StoryCorps, it felt like a coming home for me in a lot of ways. I couldn't believe that this existed in New York and based on a similar premise, except it wasn't just Black folks, it was everybody. And they had a print department because they it's an audio-based organization. They basically, they go around the country set up recording booths, invite people from the community to come in, tell their stories. They're archived in the Library of Congress, and then they have audio producers that will then edit some of the more compelling audio for radio, and also will then turn some of these audio recordings into, transcribe them and edit them into anthologies. So I'm, like just, I'm just envisioning this such like glamorous investigative journalism, <laughs> like I'm meeting these people that are telling me about this Crazy I don't know things. fight they had on the high school courtyard because someone called them something. It was and this yeah, guy is like ninety two years old, and I was like, I can't believe you remember that. You're right? Like, I'm just no. It's I mean, and that Martin Luther King and Aruba. <laughs> I know it's a lot. Well, and that that kind of thing would happen at when I was at History Makers. I remember the like the standout interview because you know we we were just putting together these outlines, but. Sometimes as part of the research, they would have us like just call them and talk to them to kind of jog their memory. And they were interviewing this guy who was a furrier based in Harlem who did like all the black exploitation films. So made right. all, wow, yes, like made all the so he outfitted Pam Greer and stuff. Everybody, wow. And I called him and. We were talking, we talked for like ever about the neighborhood, about Harlem. Imagine. Mm -hmm. About how much it's changed, about how difficult it was for him to get a business license. Because obviously ain't nobody trying to give us nothing. Absolutely not. Then now, ever. But just kind of the difficulties that he went through getting that. Yeah. And it was a this like beautiful conversation. And at the end I was like, you know, saying goodbye. And he was like, you know, I haven't thought about a lot of these things in a really, really long time. And I'm just I'm so grateful that we 
that we could, you know, that we could talk about this. This makes, this is, uh, makes my day. I was like, you just made my year. Awesome. That's beautiful too, because they feel forgotten. Yeah. You know, like that happened. That was my heyday. Yeah. Like no one cares. And then someone comes along. I'm sure there's so many times too, like you're out, you're done with the questions and they're like, oh, let me show you this. Let me tell you this. Okay. Now that we're done. With yeah, this. here's the real story. Here's the real stuff. Like, right, look at this. Right. I made this for this person back in the day. Or they'll just like randomly, like just want to give, like give you this, whether it's something physical or something, you know, a thought or something you should move forward with. Right. right. Yeah. Because I'm sure they have a lot of advice for you. Totally. Yeah. And you know, I think a lot of times people just want to be listened to. They want to feel like their stories are, yeah. are valued. Especially older people. Especially older people. But we need to listen to older people's stories more. Like, oh, I, absolutely. We, we need to get all of that wisdom and hold on to it because they are like they are living history. And the further we get away from that, I mean, yeah, I've always I've loved even when I was a kid, I never liked I just love listening to older people, like mm-hmm. listening mm-hmm. to their stories. Yeah. I would never want to go to like be ushered away to be with the kids. I was like, let me just sit at the adult table and I won't have to say anything. I'll just like, listen, y'all can talk to me. I'll just Mm -hmm. nod. (laughs) But I loved it. And so that History Makers and StoryCorps was a way for me to just do, continue to do that. And listening to, I've listened to a lot of stories at this point and Mm -hmm. they all feel like, it's a privilege. It very yeah. much feels like a privilege to be able to record and preserve and hopefully honor the, you know, the stories that have kind of come my come my way. Yeah. You know, it's crazy thinking about StoryCorps. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a StoryCorps story. The police officer on Mr. Rogers, have you have you heard that one? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a black man who was a police officer on Mr. Rogers, and I'm trying to find his name. Francois Clemens. Okay. And so he, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, everybody knows Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, but it was around the time of like a lot of <clears throat> issues in civil rights that Mr. Rogers wanted to invite a black man onto the show as a representative of black people in a very positive way. So they had this gentleman, Francois Clemens, who was this great opera singer turned actor who came and was just a police officer. And, you know, Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens would have these like just regular conversations and like wash like soaking their feet in a tub on Mr. Mr. Rogers. Rogers. Just to kind of <laughs> just to kind of demonstrate to you know American youth. That was my granddad. And the and the public that soaking like in the tub. That's exactly. <laughs> like, I didn't have a lot of here. older family. Actually we don't have a lot of older male. I don't know what we did there. Cancel. We killed them. No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I have a lot of older males in my family. But that's like, he was like that figure for me. He mm-hmm. was just like, oh, grandpa. Yeah. And so it's the, the story of Officer Clemens, which I'm probably, I'm sure his name might not have been Officer Clemens on the show. But what StoryCorps did is go into the fact that he was actually a gay man during that time. And oh, he just covered all the bases. Right. But he couldn't say he was gay on the show. So Mr. Rogers knew he was gay, but because of the time being a gay man, a gay black man, was not accepted. Mm-hmm. And so he actually married a woman just to kind of downplay the fact that he was a gay man and then later came out. And they talk about the relationship between Mr. Rogers and this gentleman and how at first it became, I accept you for who you are, but we can't have you on the show. To be who you are, 
we still can't have this on the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was a very introspective way of looking at this one gentleman who wasn't necessarily a primary character. He was a recurring character, but not a primary character on the show and showing not only the development of him as a character on the show, but also the developing of him coming out as a gay black man in society. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of storytelling that I think StoryCorps and writers are missing at times. We, I think in this time of like minuscule news reporting where you get a bullet point and a couple like key facts and then you move on, we're missing that introspective, just just look at who people are, how they got where they are and where they're going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Or just a corner, like a little corner in your life that no one would even think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like just so randomly, like at a day in their life or, yeah. or something just... I don't know, this love, this is so random. I don't know why. Oh, it's because I'm hungry. Like his love for grilled cheese. <laughs> or like, you know, just something that'll spin off. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. It also could be, you know, it's very nuanced. I think everything is nuanced. As much as you could accept him, sometimes people think they're doing someone a favor, right? And I'm protecting you from something maybe like, mm-hmm. as a, I feel like Mr. Rogers is down. Like as a white man, Maybe this is, I'm just telling you that maybe this is not a good idea. I know how people are going to react and I just feel like this is not a good, you my boy. And I would like for this not to be, you know, the one thing that holds you back going forward. Yeah, but I just think it's like a, think about like the key message that he was trying to say. He's like, no, black people are cool, right? We shouldn't be fighting against them. So now to imagine like we're trying to paint this one narrative. Will you as a black man being gay completely derail that picture of what we want to show as black people? Right. Can we present that? Can we not? Mm-hmm. But just the way that the story unfolded, you're like, wow, I understand why in 1970, this was the choice that was made. I understand how like in 2019, this might not have been the same choice, but you Probably can would see. Definitely not. Well, right. mm-hmm. you never know. Right. <laughs> Depends. Depends. Don't know. You know, right. there's still some hangups, but there right. are also people, you know, in full Cleopatra garb at the Met Gala living their best lives. Mm, true. You know, there's that whole thing. I mean, yeah, those thoughts are going to be around forever. And, you know, especially every time I see someone, I see an African-American man and, you know, drag or something right away. And they're like, this is the system, you know, trying to take away the black masculinity. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, OK, but maybe he's just being himself. Like, right. I, don't, I don't. Or maybe he really loves. I love his outfit. I would rock it, <laughs> but let him live. He looks amazing. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that people have a really hard time letting people be themselves, letting mm-hmm. people live. You know, things that have nothing to do with them personally, but they are holding on to, they're projecting so much of their own stuff onto this person who's really just trying to just go about their business mm-hmm. in the way that they want to. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's not something that a lot of people are willing to let other people do, which is, I know, I live with my mama now. (laughs) (laughs) I have armpit hair and it's like a problem. Yeah, I can see that. For her. I was like, but I'm busy. Like, (laughs) Also, it's, that is not womanly. I'm like, eh, okay. Right. (laughs) Cool. Is and it it's like it's like May too. We are just getting into warm I mean, weather. It was cold. Let's be real. Like, yeah, like ain't nobody seeing your armpits, armpits yet. Armpits anyway. aren't out yet. Yeah, relax, mom. <laughs> right. Armpits aren't in. <laughs> no, she's just like it was like it's turning up her world. I was just like, 
Oh my God, mom, I'm not sticking it to you. I just really don't give up. <laughs> like, that's not a priority for me. I'm so sorry. That's off topic. Get so out of this I armpit. Do wanna, let's get out of this Let's armpit. get out the armpit. <laughs> so I do want to talk to you about making the transition from being at Story Curves to being an independent, mm-hmm. self-employed yeah. writer, yes, tell us about it. editor, producer. Because when we think of someone who is a writer, a creative, who is independent, the automatic thing you think of is poor. <laughs> I see like someone in their underwear and like a t-shirt and like a bowl of cereal. But then I also see like all those dope writers you see in Harper's Bazaar. And like, mm-hmm. it's like, there's like a, there's like that. And then I think fat, like there's, there's only the spectrum. Mm-hmm. There's people in like tatted underwear on a couch. And there's people who are like, I wear Prada on the regular <laughs> Right. Yes. I just yeah. have a flexible schedule. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm living my best life. There's a whole lot of... Lot in of, between. Yeah, in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So the transition into freelancing full-time was a terrifying mm-hmm. decision to make. But so I'd, I'd been at StoryCorps for five years and had, you know, produced a few books and produced a few seasons of animation and... I started at StoryCorps as an intern, and but by the time I I'd left, I was heading the depart the department that I'd I'd interned at when I first started there. So I felt like I had done I had done the things mm-hmm. I had done all the things, and I was ready for a creative challenge, a new creative challenge, but I didn't necessarily know what the next step looked like, and so for a while I thought about trying to get into just go into traditional publishing and and go the editor route at at a house like at a penguin or something but and so i started doing a lot of like informal like coffees and drinks with people who i knew in the industry just to kind of get a lay of the land yeah because even though publishing was something that i had obviously had exposure to and was in it wasn't it was not i was not in that world full full time. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it was it's an interesting landscape and it is a very it's a space that's that's hard to break into if you haven't started as like an editorial assistant when you were, you know, 22 right out of college yeah. and then work. walk us through like what are the like cuz I'm sure there's steps just like any other career. Yeah. Path. But yeah. I just feel like there's so many mini steps in like writing and like public. Like it's just like, is there a lot of in and out, or is there like does someone tap you and they're like, you could do this, or are you like, I'll do it, I can do it. Like, how does it? I mean, I think it's it's a mix of both, but I think that the path is you just start at the bottom and work your way. Yeah. And starting at the bottom is yeah, like working as an editorial assistant and getting paid. Nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So many people are confused by that, right? Because we live in such a time that like you could do anything you set your mind to. And you're like, yeah, that's great. In 20 years, like you still have to learn what it is you want to do. Right. It's not like, I I believe I can do this. The publishing world is also, so I did a brief stint as a a recruiter for off-campus recruiter at Time Inc. Mm. So a lot of the, the people we got were people who were in college who wanted to intern at Time Inc. And the hope was that at the end of that internship that they would land, like you said, an editorial coordinator position. And you are making peanuts 
and you are working so very hard. But it's like you just need that one foot in the door that you can grind and hopefully prove yourself. And then you can, you know, start to bump up the ladder. And what a lot of people don't realize is that in those worlds, you don't actually start making serious bank until you're somewhat senior. Yeah. And even then, I mean, depending on the house you're in, you know, the position, you're not, bank is not like, you know, crazy six-digit right. numbers or anything. You're still, I mean, it's it's a hard, mm-hmm. but a lot of a lot of people who go into publishing are often supported mm-hmm. by other means. Parental, possibly. Yes, exactly. And so then you start getting into, okay, so who are historically the kinds of people who can afford Mm -hmm. to be in these spaces? Mm -hmm. Who can afford to move to big cities where a lot of these publishing places are? Yes. And not make a lot of money. And still manage to live in an apartment Mm -hmm. on the the Upper West Side or wherever. With one roommate. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. Yes. And you see the kind of landscape that this environment creates. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I found very quickly that I learned very quickly that it was it was a difficult space to navigate if you were if you if you were trying to pursue it like in a non-traditional way, like Mm -hmm. someone like me who has a lot of experience doing the things that I've done to then, you know, try to you know, go into a, even a mid-level or a senior-ish position. May probably start like started a mid-level position was like not something. And then the other thing was just the extreme lack of diversity mm-hmm. in these spaces at every level. Already sigh. <laughs> it's a huge sigh. It's a huge sigh. It's a huge sigh. And it's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And um, a big shame, really. Yeah. That in this day and age, that this is something that we're still having to talk about and still having to Especially navigate. Especially because we know our stories sell, like, hard. Mm-hmm. Ask now, NBC Universal. They right. find us very, very interesting. Now, they, now, now. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that the market was as open to all of these, like, beautiful right. black and brown stories, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Even, yeah. yeah, so... But yeah, so it's just like it's a it's a very white space. It's a it's a very specific kind of white space. And a lot of and I was just like, I don't I don't know about mm-hmm. this. So, you know, so at the same time, I was I was starting to talk to a friend of mine who I used to work with at StoryCorps who had started doing had been working freelance basically full time and was freelance editing books, nonfiction books, and was getting to a point where she was getting in more projects than she could handle by herself. Mm. So had asked if I wanted to try my hand at this. And so that's, that is ultimately what I did. But I, I started doing it not knowing if it was going to work out, not mm. knowing. I mean, I did not have a stable job on the other end. But I, so I was like, okay, I'm just going to hustle during these last months of being a full-time employee as much as I can yeah. and save as much as I can so that I can have a little bit of a... a Buffer. S- exactly. Yeah. 
So, and then I was like, all right, well, I have this much money in X many months to find a job or find a gig that can sustain me. And luckily, this book project I started working on at the proposal level, and it and it sold. So then I worked on the manuscript, and that was enough to keep me keep me going. And enough that plus supplementing with other kind of smaller projects was enough to keep you know keep me able to pay my bills and pay my rent and all that stuff. But freelancing is a huge. I had to confront parts of myself that I have never seen. <laughs> Do tell. Like, this Do better tell. have my money. <laughs> I'm holding this piece hostage. <laughs> I mean, so it's like... But like, people don't value that type of work. Like, I'm yeah. doing the writing. I'm doing, like, the foot, like, the steps now. Part of me is, yeah, maybe just, maybe I'm not finding my worth, too. But, like, when you explain to people, like, like what this is, they're like, eh. But I can go here and get, I'm like, but that's great, right? right? I also don't live in Bosnia and my rent is not. Bosnia. I'm just thinking Fiverr. There's a lot of people from Bosnia on Fiverr. Hey. Hustle. You know what? I'm just like, well, then go get, go see what $35 is going to get for you. Right. You go do that. But I live in New York City. Mm-hmm. And this is going to take time away from lots of things. So, yeah. Yes. Like, well, and th- that is like, that is a huge part of it. Just. Like, first, just learning. Like the writing part is like, yeah, but there's so much work up to it. Yeah. You're like, I'm spending, like, a lot of time. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The writing is one is one part. The other part is articulating your worth, standing up for yourself in what you feel like you should be, putting a value yeah. on your, your work and your craft and your ideas. And that's really freaking hard. Mm-hmm. And, like... It can be intimidating. And I think that there, I struggled in the beginning and still struggle from time to time with this idea of, you know, you, you, you put a, a dollar amount on what you think you should be paid for, the, for a thing and then you feel bad about asking for it. Yeah. Or like, oh, am I paying too much? And, or I'm, am I asking too much? I'm like, no, these are my expenses. Mm-hmm. I need to live. I live here. And I feel like men are not thinking about thinking twice about this shit. So mm-hmm. we shouldn't be either. Like we should be, and I've had to tell myself this many times in the mirror, like we should just be just saying what we know we mm-hmm. are, we should be owed and saying it without apology. Yeah. Um, take it or leave it. Take this it or is leave it. it. Yeah. You'll want it. All right. Later. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of other people. Or like it's the opposite. Like you'll say this number and you're like, and they're like, yes. You're like, I could ask. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like they jumped like, on that real right. hard body. Like, Why? oh, it's going to be that easy? Why uh, did they do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of that. And then the writing. So I hadn't, I'd done a lot of editing, like, in my career up, up to that point. And I, I wrote a lot in grad school and before. But I was really coming back to writing in, in a more intense way starting to, uh, doing freelance, which came with its own stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, then comes in the imposter syndrome. Yep. Girl. Then comes in all of those insecurities. That's a later episode. Mm-hmm. We right. have somebody for that. <laughs> oh, and I, I mean, so if you have an imposter syndrome episode, you need to bring Chris Benz onto the show because he has like 
five cents. Chris is my husband. He has five cents to to talk to say about imposter syndrome. He's like, oh. get that out of here. Imposter syndrome. That's so funny. I was just telling DJ the person who's coming on because right away I was like, definitely women, definitely women of color. And she was like, honestly, most of my clients are men. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? like what? people, like not most of our clients, most of the people who seek her out, she's like a therapist. Oh, who and deal with this imposter issue? syndrome. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. And so like part of, you know, that's something that's been coming up lately. And she was like, oh, I think it'd be fascinating. Oh, she, sorry. I took my headphones off because they were making my ears hot. <laughs> and so, you know, I was vetting her or we were talking about like just making sure she'd want to be on and vice versa. And I was like, so is it like mainly women and mainly women of color? And she's like, honestly, I have a lot of men. I probably have a lot more men who come to me about things like that. Huh. Interesting. Right. So they're not saying it. I think there's, I mean, I always think there's always a spectrum of things. And maybe that's just the way, I I don't know if my psychological training or whatever the case may be. But when we think of imposter syndrome, I think that women, women of color, people of color to an extent, because they've been told that they haven't been able to or they can't. Right. Or that they shouldn't. She made it really clear that that's an infrastructure systems issue and not a psychological issue on their part. Right. So there might be a greater proportion of those groups who are just like, I can do it. Can I do it? I mean, no one else is doing it. I don't see anybody who looks like me. I mean, should I, should I, I don't know. Maybe it's it's not for me. Maybe I should just quit, right? It's really Mm -hmm. scary. But I think everyone, especially when you achieve a certain amount of success in your life or a certain amount of successes in whatever path you take, you might start to doubt like, should I be in this space? Am I as smart as I thought I was? Or when you hit that first roadblock or that first no or that yeah. first like moment where you have to say, hmm, do I know what I'm doing? I haven't done this in a while. Like, do I make this turn? I'm not sure. I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's another end of the spectrum. So I think when we think of imposter syndrome and how it affects everyone, I think it, everyone has a, a little bit of imposter syndrome. I'm sure Beyonce has days in which she was like, damn. No, my backup dancers are really killing it right now. I gotta, I don't know. Am True, because she can't move the these, way. I had these three kids. I don't yeah. know. Right. She know. literally popped out a baby and then it was like a homecoming. And I, even I was like, well, no, I don't think you should move the way you did four months ago. <laughs> right, but then two babies so just then came you, out of you. So then you also have those external pressures of like, oh, as a mom, shouldn't you be home? Or like, as yeah, a, why are you going on tour? No, why are you? Oh, those babies were brand new. Yeah, right, but like that's another, baby. I think those are all affect people who might be who suffering. Who's going to do it for her? Who's going to be Beyonce for her? That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's also why she created, like, Sasha Sasha Fierce, mm-hmm. this this entity, mm-hmm. this Alter persona. Yeah. yeah. Who could be the things that that she wanted to be even on those days where she, where she didn't feel it or couldn't be that. Because, you know, yeah, I think it is. And it's unfortunate that that it kind of like disproportionately affects us because it's something that I learned. It took me a while to realize that a lot of these insecurities that I've had, yeah, had nothing to do with me and and more to do with these spaces and structures that I was navigating that were not equipped to relate to me in in a real way. Mm. Like just because you you can't understand or can't relate to what I'm saying doesn't mean that like I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Yeah. It yeah. means that we maybe we need to have more diverse spaces with with different kinds of voices at the table, different kinds of so that so that people can feel validated more mm-hmm. in their in their opinions. 
But yeah, so like all of that stuff, all of that stuff happened. But I also realized if I got caught up in my feelings, it would prevent me from doing my job. And if I could not do my job, it's not like when I was working, full, you know, at my at an organization where like I have a bad day or a bad week or even a bad month. And I still, I mean, unless I just totally like screw it up, they're not yeah. going to fire me. Mm-hmm. But if I have those bad days or months or weeks or whatever, I could lose that job and then I could not have money. A stream of income, yeah. yeah. Yes. So I needed to figure out a way, figure out ways and develop tools to get right with myself just so I could be in the space. where, And, and also, you know, doing creative work where it requires you to show up I mean, with any kind of work, it requires you to show up. But like so much of it is, you know, you're in your head and you have to like use, you have to trust your instincts. You have to trust your voice. I was like, I need to figure out how to do this. If this is what I want to do, what I've chosen to do, like I need to figure out how to be right and and healthy in my, the way that I talk to myself and the way that I, I move through this process. Otherwise, I am not going to make it. I'm I'm gonna just like yeah. give up and try have to figure something else to do. And I knew I didn't want to do that, so I was like, "All right, figure it out, Maya. Let's do it." <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's a really good what's place. My framework, to, yeah. What to, is like, the framework? Transition. I want the framework. Yeah. <laughs> we, we go. What's a little teaser? <laughs> <laughs> what's the framework, Chris? 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 This is your your official call out. We trying to get the framework. All right. We want to hear you on the podcast. All right, Chris. Then you know. we need the framework. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Bagels and Plantains with your girls Deidre and Christina. If you like the flavor we're kicking in your ear and want to know more about upcoming guests, follow us on the gram at Bagels and Plantains. If you want to show us even more love, then don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or drop a little of that coin into the support bucket at our Patreon link below in our show notes so we can keep bringing you the latest and the greatest. Thank you again for tuning in.